The sermon text and gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave from them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thanks, Christian. Um, it's my, uh, my joy that I get to uh, share God's word with us this morning, bring his teaching to us. We're, uh, if you've been with us for the last eight months, you know we're in a series uh, of going totally verse by verse through the book of Mark. And, um, and this week we come to a pretty familiar passage, I think, for a lot of us, if you, especially if you've been in church for a while. Um, and when I was talking with Scott some weeks ago as we were looking forward to this week, he said, yeah, you have the passage where uh, Jesus walks on water. And I love that passage. I love this passage. Um, but when, when we were talking about it, the first place my mind went to, and, and maybe yours would too if someone just said Jesus walking on water, is that interaction between Jesus and Peter. Where Jesus extends his hand, you know, Jesus is walking on water, Peter gets out of the boat, he's walking on water too, I won't give it away, we'll, we'll, we'll go through John and uh, Matthew another time, but um, that's the scene my mind goes to, I got excited about talking about that, and then I came and read the passage and discovered, Mark doesn't include that uh, in his account. And so, uh, also something we've probably mentioned before, and you may also have noticed yourself, Mark is the shortest gospel of the four synoptic gospels. Uh, he's the most pithy. He's very to the point. He only includes what he thinks is absolutely necessary. You see in Mark a lot of immediately this and immediately that. We're moving quickly. So um, Luke doesn't include this at all, this, this scene of Jesus walking on water. But Luke's a much longer book, and I think that he covers the same ground in other ways. Uh, but John and, and Matthew, they do include that whole interaction with Peter. So as I sat down with this passage this week, I thought, okay, he missed the whole part with Peter, so, but, he, but for Mark, obviously, he included this, this scene for a very important reason. So what was it? And that's what I got to dig into this week and what I get to share with you this morning. And so we're going to look at, um, give us some structure here, three points. Uh, why did Jesus walk on water? Why that? And then how the disciples responded to him, and, uh, and then how he responds to the disciples. So as we dive into our passage, I just want to also take a look back to last week. If you remember last week, uh, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. So uh, Scott preached on it. There were five loaves and two fish. And he has 5,000 people to feed. And he feeds, not only does he feed 5,000 people, but he has 12 baskets left over at the end. So there's more leftovers after feeding 5,000 people than he started with. Miraculous, right? 
And so um, the fact that this walking on water happens right after that is not a coincidence. And so let's look at why. So I'm going to um, read into our passage a little bit here. Verse 45. So immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go after him to the other side of the Seda while he dismissed the crowd. So he's just fed them all. He's dismissed them. Disciples, you go out on the boat. And after he had taken leave of them, the disciples, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Okay, so Jesus on the land. He's dismissed the crowd. The disciples are out on the sea on the boat. So verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, so we understand the fourth watch to be the last part of the night before dawn, so this is like three or four in the morning. He came to them walking on sea. And here's a really important part. It says that he meant to pass by them. So he came to them walking on the sea. So he, he, he clearly meant for them to see him walking on the sea, but he meant to pass by them. He didn't intend to have an interaction with them. What is that all about? So, why the walking on the sea? Um, so back in that era, no printing press. So uh, if you knew the scriptures, you had it memorized. If you were a rabbi, you had the whole Old Testament memorized. How many verses do you have memorized? I mean, I, I know it's not the whole Old Testament. And so, um, and so without, you know, so in order for the, the household, uh, for a Jewish household to have uh, the scripture in their household, they had to memorize it. And, they, you know, they go to temple, they'd hear it preached, they'd memorize it, come home and talk about it. So the cultural context in which uh, Jesus is walking on water is super important. And so, and these, these folks, the disciples and, and the whole Jewish community are very familiar with these various passages and the key themes of the Old Testament. And one of them is this interaction between God and water. I'm going to just, I'm going to just share with you a couple to give you a sense of what that theme is. Genesis 1-2. The earth was, out form, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So ominous. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I mean, I just kind of get goosebumps thinking about that. You know, like, the, if you've ever been in the ocean at night, pretty immense. And then if you imagine the, the, the ocean that's covering the whole earth at this point, because it's not, it hasn't made land yet, and he's just hovering over it. Psalm 29.3, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders in the Lord over many waters. The book of Job, the oldest book in the Bible, chapter 9, verse 4, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. And then at verse 8, he says, Who alone stretched out the heavens? And look at this. Oldest book of the Bible, he's already referencing God on the water. He says, And he trampled the waves of the sea. Isaiah fifty-seven twenty. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire, and dirt. The sea, Scott referenced this quickly in a sermon like six or seven weeks ago. The sea, the ocean, the waters represent chaos. Represent anarchy. Represent uh, a, a lack of as things should be, of form. So the, the, the God's in creation. He's hovering over the waters. And what does he do? He separates land f- from the ocean, day from night. Species, seasons, biomes. He brings order to chaos. 
And then when we look at sort of chaos, it's also likened to anarchy or evil, the lack, things not being as they should be. And it says God trampled the waves of the sea. The wicked are tossing like the sea. And then, fast forward to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and John brings this home for us. You know, we, we talk about, <clears throat> Jesus talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And here at our church, Scott said it in announcements, we're joining God as family on mission for the renewal. Why renewal? Why do we use that word? Because the scripture tells us God is renewing the earth now, and one day he will bring that renewal to completion. And what will renewal look like? Well, here's one thing. Revelation 27.1 says, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What's he saying? He's not saying that there's going to be no maritime activities in the new heaven or new earth. He's not saying there won't be any ocean. He's saying there will be no more chaos. Things will be as they should be. So, the point that Jesus is trying to make to the disciples when they see him walk on water, he's saying, I am the God over the water. I'm not just a genie or a magician that can multiply bread. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. I am the fountain of of eternal life. And then, as if to drive the point home to the disciples, it says, in verse 50, he says, For they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Now, uh, any Presbyterian minister that has to go, you know, goes to seminary and takes Greek, and then you graduate and forget most of it. But the stuff that you do remember, one of the things is going to be a phrase that, it, that goes like this. Ego me." Egoing me. And egoing me is what Jesus says right here. It's most often translated in the Bible, I am. And it is the exact phrase that God says to Moses when Moses is standing before the burning bush and says, Who are you? Jesus gets in the boat with his disciples and says, I am. Take heart. He's using uh, the cultural context. They understand in their culture, this theme of the water. And so by walking on water, he had to drill home the point. Mark's asking, sort of observing with the, with the disciples, what did you learn from the loaves? Now, remember, it just, Jesus says he meant to walk past the boats. I think Jesus was hoping that they would have seen the, the multiplying of the loaves and gotten, oh my gosh, he's God. But not, sure enough, they, they didn't. And so by walking on water, he had to drill that point home. He's the Lord over the water, Lord over the chaos. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just sit down with the disciples and just kind of set them straight? And be like, listen, guys, I, I, know you're, uh, I know you're looking for a Messiah that's going to be like this military general. I just want you to know, number one, I am the Messiah. And number two, it's not going to look how you thought. Um, so just to be clear, I'm the third part of the Trinity. I'm the Son. I was there at the beginning. I'll be there at the end. You know, like, why didn't he just lay it out for him? And uh, I, I think that sometimes using a symbol, using a specific act can be, just penetrate so much deeper than just telling it how it is. I'll give you an example of that. We have a picture here. Let's see if, uh, how many of us recognize this. Do you know what's happening here? Now, you, you, may, you may recognize uh, where this is. This is on the set of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, and Mr. Rogers, he, if you've ever seen this show, he does the same thing 
at the beginning of every episode, he comes into the scene and he's, he takes off his blazer and he puts on his famous sweater and carries on with the show. But in this show, he does something different. Comes in on the scene. You can hardly talk about this while I turn up. <clears throat> he comes in on the scene and he ha- as he often has various people uh, on his show, this one, this is Officer Clemens, who's been on the show before and will be on it again. And Officer Clemens comes with him onto the, the scene and he looks at Officer Clemens and says, I'm hot. Are you hot? Let's cool off. And as if it's going to make a difference, he pours eight inches of water into a kiddie pool and uh, takes off their socks and shoes and rolls their pants and they put their feet in the kiddie pool and they just talk about the weather. Now, if you're sitting there and you don't know what this is about, it doesn't seem significant. But it is. Because this is the year that Congress is going to vote on whether or not it should be legal for public pools to be segregated. Just a few uh, few months before this, uh, a, a group of protesters, both black and white, jumped into a public pool at a motel, and the motel owner uh, owner puts acid in the pool. Just such hate, hatefulness. And Mr. Rogers could have grabbed the could have grabbed the lens and looked into the camera and said to America, "That is wrong. That is hateful." But instead, he chose to do something very genteel. Very kind, but extremely culturally relevant. And he puts, he sits there with Officer Clemens, and the, together they put their feet into a kiddie pool. Officer Clemens says, "I don't have a towel," and Mr. Rogers says, "I've got one. You can borrow mine." Twenty-five years later, Mr. Rogers is still doing his show, and he invites Officer Clemens back onto the show. You got a picture of that too, and they go about the, the episode the same way, except he does one thing different. Miss Lily, we have that picture. We'll see if it comes up. He does one thing different. So it's 25 years, same officer, same Mr. Rogers, same kiddie pool. Hey, it's hot. I'm hot too. Let's take off our shoes. I don't have a towel. I've got a towel. Except this time, Mr. Rogers says the same thing to culture, but he takes it one step further. And he takes the towel and he drives off Officer Clemens' feet for him. As if to tell the culture, now remember, Mr. Rogers was a Presbyterian minister. As if to tell the culture, guys, I'm not just an activist that, I, that, that feels like I, I know what's right and wrong. I'm not just being progressive here. I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord over the water, the Lord over the chaos. And by doing that, with smiles and kindness and gentleness, he penetrated the culture on an issue that was so important. And Jesus is doing the same thing by walking on water. Oftentimes, if you're reading the, the, the Gospels, all these miracles that, he's, that he does, the signs that he makes, it can kind of feel like he's being reactive to people coming up to him and whatever. Not the case. He's just extremely tactful. He's got three and a half years. And just like Mr. Rogers, every one of them comes with gentleness and extreme, incredible vibrato. He had to walk on the waters. Because he's the Lord over the waters. And he needed the disciples to know that. So how did they respond? How did they respond? Let's look at verse 48. So he meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Now, could you imagine? You're a grown-up, and you freak out because you think it's a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. 
But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And here it is. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So, you know, we all, as we, as we grow up, uh, we, we try to make sense of the world, right? We're putting together um, what, what's, what's called a worldview. What's life about? Um, what constitutes happiness and joy? What, what's the meaning and suffering? Um, what's important? What's not? What's frivolous? You know, we're all trying to piece that together. And as Christians, the Bible feeds that to us. But inevitably, the, the culture and some of our own experiences, which are obviously tend to be one-dimensional and not, you know, the full picture, we put some stuff into our worldview that's not exactly biblical. So the <laughs> the disciples clearly have. Uh, some some um, secular worldview in, in their mind, because if they'd understood about the loaves, they'd understand this man can do anything. Maybe this man this man isn't just a man; he's God. He's control over the, he's in control over the universe. And yet, when they see him, their first response is a ghost. And um, you know. We talk about, the scripture talks about having like the faith of a child. I guarantee you, a child who saw what Jesus did with the loaves would not have been like, it's a ghost. A child would have connected the dots. So that's, you know, when we talk about having the faith like a child, opening our worldview to what the Bible is trying to tell us. One commentator, um, the commentator that I was reading about this passage speaks to how, to, how do we make that change? And he says this. Mark again reminds us that faith is not an inevitable result of knowing about Jesus or even being with Jesus. These these disciples are living with Jesus. And they're seeing everything he's doing and hearing everything he says. Faith is not something that happens automatically or evolves inevitably. It is a personal decision or choice. You can come to church... You can hear the word preached, you can sing the songs, you can be around believers, and your faith cannot grow. You have to choose to let the Bible, you have to choose to let the Spirit speak into your life in order for you to grow spiritually. It's not just inevitability of being around it, being around Him. And the, the disciples show that. It's just incredible. I mean, I, you know, I'm reading this, I'm like, these boneheads, they just saw Him multiply lo- uh, all these loaves, and they missed it. And it's not inevitability. You have to work the truth into your mind. One of my favorite accounts in the Gospels is where Jesus is interacting with this man who's wanting uh, healing from, for his child. And Jesus is like, do you believe? And the man's like, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I think we should all be praying that. I was praying that this week. Because reality is... We don't all believe perfectly. We don't all believe fully. For every one of us, there are places where the culture, where, where, where secular culture has defined how we see the world. There's places where we need to decide to let the truth of the Scripture, decide to let the Spirit of God more into our lives, more into our thinking, more into our hearts, more into how we perceive of what's important and what's not. You have to make a decision. You know, so many of us, um, not so many of us, all of us, all of us, there are places where we truncate who Jesus is. We do, we do see him as, use him as, relate to him as a magician or a genie. 
And, uh, you know, I, it wouldn't be a David sermon without a car illustration, because if you know me, I'm a big car guy. So here's your car illustration for this morning. Uh, cars were invented, um, you know, in the late 1800s, but really became uh, my, my car man here. Got some other car people in here. Get fired up. Cars became uh, really popular in um, in the early 1900s, and and when and when they became prolific in culture, it completely revolutionized the way that human transportation worked. All of a sudden, getting to church, getting to a friend's house, going on vacation, going to the hospital became way more accessible. And so, today, I, you know, I'm a big car guy. I, I appreciate the transportation for it, for sure. But my three-and-a-half-year-old is also a big car person. By nature, nurture, I'm not sure, but he is. Um, and one of his favorite things is if uh, he gets to just play in the car, especially if we'll put on the auxiliary power so he can turn on the air and turn on the radio and hit the buttons, the hazards, press the horn. He loves it. But how automotive... Automobiles have revolutionized human transportation, completely lost on them. And I believe that every one of us at certain places in our life, and maybe, maybe totally in general, we, we, we relate, relate to God like this. We, want, we like the flashing lights, the, bus, the buttons, the noises, but do we really want our lives to be revolutionized? Do we just want Him to make more loaves for us? Or do we want the bread of life? Do we just want another job, more money, more secure retirement, a boyfriend or girlfriend, get into school? Or do we want to submit and obey the Lord of, our, of creation? Pray that with me this week. Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. There's places where every one of us are doing it. Truncating Jesus. So let's look at how Jesus responds to the disciples. Verse 50. So, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Now, as I already said, Jesus meant for them to see him, and he meant to walk past them. Uh, I think his intent was, again, for them to see him as the Lord over the chaos. And then I think that he intended that they had got understood the loaves, and that then when they understood the walking on the water, and that when they all rendezvoused at Bethsaida, that they could process it all together. And so when they see him, they think it's a ghost, and these guys are freaking out. He changes. He changes what he was going to do. Now, uh, the word that Mark uses here in, in, in the Greek uh, is unlike almost anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark, where he talks about walking. Um, you know, part of why we have to learn Greek as preachers is because there's like ten times the number of vocabulary words, and, uh, and knowing those nuances is helpful. And here's one of those spots. Um, there's, there, one of the words you can use for walking in Koine Greek uh, indicates getting from point A to point B. And that's what Mark usually uses. But here he uses a word that he doesn't use just about anywhere else, and it's more of like a... Uh, a leisurely walk, almost a meandering. It seems to me that Jesus is enjoying himself. He's enjoying this walk on the waves. He's not, he's not, you know, there's all these waves, but he's not like trudging through it. He's enjoying his walk. 
and he intended to walk to the to the uh, to the beach, and yet he stops, and he addresses the disciples. What um, what I think Jesus is modeling for us here is what the Apostle Paul refers to as speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Uh, Jesus sees that there is a teachable moment with the disciples. And he chooses to harness that teachable moment. I, I, I can't think of any other reason why he could have meant to walk by them and chooses not to walk by them, but go and get in the boat with them and be gentle and speak the truth to them, other than he knew that they, they, this can't wait for the beach. You need to hear this right now. Let's look at Ephesians 4.11, where Paul actually talks about what speaking the truth in love looks like and why it's important. It says, And he gave the apostles, this is Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, that's all you and me to the saints. That's the church. These are all the spiritual gifts of various people in the church that he's talking about. For the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, the church, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or adulthood. So a key theme for Paul is this, this whole notion of spiritual childhood and a spiritual maturity. He talks about being on, on, on basically on breast milk and then moving to solids. Growing up in your faith. Making a decision to believe more and more. Letting the Spirit work in your heart. And part of how that happens is what he tells us right here. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, clearly alluding to what's happening with the disciples who are both figuratively and uh, literally being tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every uh, wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. These are all those worldviews that you and I hold that are not biblically true. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And Jesus shows us how it's done right here. Number one, he's willing to inconvenience himself to do it. You know, uh, for a, a lot of us, you know, I'm a pretty perceptive guy. And... Uh, and there's definitely been many instances where I've spoken truth and not in love. And uh, that's what you call a truth bomb. And I've, you know, some of my siblings, you know, I've got two younger brothers, and so there's a lot of big brother, little brother truth bombs being thrown around. And, um, and they've called me out on it. Uh, speaking the truth in love will involve uh, choosing your moment carefully. Speaking the truth in love uh, will include gentleness and clarity, choosing your words carefully. Speaking the truth in love should not feel like that, like, I got them, you know? should not feel like uh, super satisfying. It should feel like discipleship. Here it inconvenienced Jesus, and he was gentle. He could have been like, you boneheads. Did you not just see what I just did with the loaves? No. He goes over and calms them down. And not only does he calm them down, he calms down the sea to help them self-regulate. 
He's caring for their spirit as well as their mind. Yeah, choose your moments, you choose your words carefully, choose your moment carefully. And then the other side of that equation is we have to be humble. If we want someone to be able to speak the truth and love to us, and we want to be able to receive it, you want to grow into adult, uh, uh, spiritual adulthood, we have to be humble. You know, I often think, uh, you know, the disciples were mostly of humble origins, fishermen, illiterate, uh, you know, not of great uh, status. I, I wondered, did Jesus choose them because he knew they'd be teachable? Are you and I teachable? Are we able to hear the truth spoken to us in love? Sometimes the truth being spoken in love uh, may come from someone who is younger than you. It may come from somebody who is, uh, doesn't have the degrees you do or the money you do or the children you do or the spouse you do. But Jesus, he used a donkey for heaven's sakes. God, God will speak to us however he wants. So we've got to be on the lookout for the truth and love to come to us. And let's, let's be a church that can hear the truth and love be spoken to us. As, uh, as, as, we, as we get ready to go to the table, as we get ready to confess together, pray with me, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Pray the Lord would give us boldness to speak the truth and love to each other. And let's pray the Lord will humble our hearts to receive it. Will you, speak to, will you pray with me now? Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you were so tactful. You left so much for us that was so uh, culturally penetrating that we can study it today and let it sink in. Thank you for people like Mr. Rogers that have demonstrated it so well. I pray that you would allow us to demonstrate that kind of truth and love in Virginia Highland, in Reynoldstown, in Peoplestown, in Morningside, in EAV, in all the neighborhoods that we occupy, West End, where the city of Atlanta want to know more about you because of how we speak the truth in love. And that they wouldn't just come to a Jesus who's Lord of the bread, but who is the bread. We pray this in your name. Amen. This is a real opportunity.